You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. You're on 3CR and welcome to Listening Notes, stories about politics, art and activism and conversations with people working to create positive change. I'm Judith Peppard and I'll be with you for the next half hour. And big thank you to Black Noise Radio for their show. Great conversations, as always. I begin by acknowledging that 3CR is broadcasting from the land of the Kulin Nations, true owners and custodians and caretakers of this land. And I also pay my respects to elders, past, present and emerging, and recognize that sovereignty has not been ceded. Today on Listening Notes, we're going to hear from Dr. Ronan Lee about his book, Myanmar's Rohingya Genocide, Identity, History and Hate Speech. It started as a PhD project, looking at Rohingya identity, and then things changed rapidly. You've got a dominant Myanmar state that wants this territory, that wants to control it, And the reason we're seeing a genocide isn't because the Rohingya have a weak claim to indigeneity in Rakhine. It's because their claim is so strong. And that's why Myanmar's military and civilian authorities want to push them out. And that's Ronan Lee, and we'll hear from him a bit later in the show. But we're going to begin closer to home by looking at how a bill currently before Parliament will affect refugees and asylum seekers in detention here in Australia. The proposed Migration Amendment Bill 2020 would allow the minister to deem mobile phones and other internet devices prohibited items and grant staff new powers to search detainees without a warrant and allow strip searches and detector dogs within the centres. Jana Favero is the Director of Campaigns at the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, which is known to many of us, of course, as the ASRC. I asked her how the bill, if passed, would affect people currently in detention, the people that they're in contact with. If this law was passed, it would have a catastrophic effect on people in detention because they're only means of communication to the outside world, especially at the moment where visitations have been ceased and paused due to COVID-19, is via phone. We have parents who are separated from their children. We have children who are grown up adults but separated from from their parents, connecting to, to loved ones, FaceTime, telehealth consultations are now conducted mainly over the phone in detention facilities. So if you can just imagine what you've used your phone for already today, I've sent grandparents pictures of my kids, I've called my neighbour to connect with them, I've checked in with colleagues to see how they're going and that's already only this morning. Let's just imagine if that overnight was taken away. I think everyone can understand what an impact that would have on your life, let alone for people who've been in detention for years upon years upon years who've already suffered so much. This would just be compounding isolation and loneliness and disconnection from the world. And I think anyone living in Melbourne can really relate to that and experiencing the lockdown over the last months. What's the current status of the bill? The bill has currently passed the House of Representatives, so it is before the Senate. The government controls what bills are listed and they will list the bill when they're confident they've got the numbers to pass it. So the next Senate sitting period is at the beginning of October, but it's not as if there's a strict timetable that the bill will be debated on this date. Um, that is up to the government. 
So we won't know until the day itself exactly when that's coming up. Won't know when it's coming up until the day itself, and we may not even know which way the vote will go until the bells ring. But why would the government want to further punish people who are already experiencing isolation and trauma and, according to the Australian Medical Association, are at high risk for suicide and self-harm? Well, Acting Immigration Minister Alan Tudge says it's to prevent drugs and contraband from coming into detention centres and to protect the Australian public. I asked Jana Favero. That's complete spin. The law is not needed. Um, Government already has sufficient powers. Even the examples that Alan Tudge himself gives as proof for the law is actually proof that the current law is working. There are sufficient seize and search powers already existing in immigration detention. That's not what the real issue here. The real issue here is just an increased power grab and further seeking to punish people in detention. I imagine the coronavirus pandemic has had a huge impact on the people you've seen at the ASRC. What have you observed? We've seen stories across the country of people doing it hard when they have lost their job or had reduced hours. But imagine that for someone who is seeking asylum and can't access any form of social security payment, any form of job keeper or job seeker. We've seen people returning to ASRC who have been working for years, paying taxes, and all of a sudden have lost their job. So we've seen increases in requests for housing, for food, for medication, for really basic day-to-day living essentials, and a threefold increase in demand for our services. It's really heartbreaking to see the impact of COVID-19 on some of those in our community who are already the most vulnerable. Yes, and if this proposed legislation goes through, it will add to hardship, particularly if people have family members in detention. That's right. It will significantly impact people in detention, but also those who are living in the community who have been in detention previously. They know how hard it is, but maybe supporting people in detention. So ASRC, as all refugee support agencies across the country, are looking into ways to meet the demand. One of the things that we are doing is building a new hub in Dandenong to better support and empower people seeking asylum in the region. This will be much like a sort of local neighbourhood village which will bring together multiple service organisations under the one roof to ensure all services for people seeking asylum. Yeah, and why have you chosen Dandenong? Because it's recognised as one of Australia's most culturally diverse regions. It has over 157 different nationalities and is home to the highest population of people seeking asylum in Victoria. So coming to Footscray to receive services is convenient for people who live on the northwest side of town, but in the southeast area. We already do have a small ASRC presence in Dandenong, and this is a way to extend not only ASRC services, but also partner with other local organisations. So we've partnered with agencies such as Sisterworks, Springvale Neighbourhood House and Monash Help to deliver and develop those services. And are you doing some fundraising for that project at the moment? It's our September appeal, which is the Building Hope appeal about building a new story of hope in Dandenong. We have been fortunate enough to receive a donation of a building, which is fantastic. And now what we need is the funds to be able to fit out and transform that building, which um, will be critical in being able to deliver the services there. People want to donate, they can go to your website. Yeah, absolutely. People can head to our website, which is, you know, all the w's.asrc.org.au and we'll see 
relevant links there, whether to donate financially to help Peel, the Building Hope Appeal for the new centre, or to take action around not only the Prohibiting Items Bill, but other advocacy areas that we're focusing on. There are two other bills before Parliament which would have equally devastating consequences for people seeking asylum and refugees. So we're also fighting against those and advocating, but people can head to our website for all the information. Jana Favero, the Director of Campaigns at the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, and she's been describing some of their campaigns and projects. We can become involved and active on issues like the proposed Migration Amendment Bill. And while Ellen Tudge, the Acting Minister for Immigration, says that the measures contained in the bill are needed to protect the Australian public, it may be that the Australian public needs to be protected from Ellen Tudge. Last week... Ellen Tudge was accused of criminal conduct in an immigration case. Justice Geoffrey Flick reminded him that he's not above the law. And also last week, fresh claims were levelled against him in the Robodebt case, that when he was Human Services Minister in 2016-17, he either knew or was recklessly indifferent to the fact that the Robodebt program was unlawful. And I'm sure we're going to be hearing lots more about that in the coming weeks. You're on 3CR. Join me, Aya Cry with Ubuntu Voices. Wednesday at 8.30 p.m. on 3CR. Ubuntu is a Zulu word, meaning I am here because you are. Ubuntu celebrates the positive contribution African Australians make to our communities in music, academia, the arts, and everything in between. Come with me on a journey. Ubuntu Voices, every Wednesday at 8.30 p.m. None of us are free. One of us is chained. None of us are free. of the Earth Food Co-op is open. Get fresh produce and support local farmers and keep our grassroots community thriving through these unusual times. Organic veggie boxes and click and collect now available. Visit www.foefood.org slash click collect to place your orders. Or pop in store at 312 Smith Street and see how we're adapting with our new physical distancing layout. Shop organic and buy local. Made easy at Friends of the Earth. A proud 3CR supporter. on 3CR. The show is Listening Notes. I'm Judith Peppard and so good to have you with us today on this Monday afternoon. It's been a bit chilly over the weekend but uh, it looks like some warm weather's coming up the rest of the week and I hope you're all managing. That's not been an easy time but great to see the numbers coming down. Next, we're going to revisit a story that was all over the media just a few years ago and look, I'm sure you'll remember the images on our television screens of the Rohingya people fleeing to Bangladesh. 
in the face of the extreme violence against them by the Myanmar military and civilians. My next guest, Dr. Ronan Lee, is a visiting scholar at Queen Mary University of London's International State Crime Initiative. Ronan conducted in-depth interviews with Rohingya people during his PhD research, and he's just published a book drawing on that research, entitled Myanmar's Rohingya Genocide, Identity, History, and Hate Speech. We looked at the history of the Rohingya, how things had become so bad in Myanmar, and the case the Gambia brought against Myanmar in the International Court of Justice last year. I began by asking Ronan Lee about the history of the Rohingya because I didn't know a lot about it. If you talked to a Rohingya in the 16th century, they would have been part of the independent Arakan kingdom. And Arakan at that stage was a multi-religious and multi-ethnic kingdom. So Muslims at that point might have been anything up to 40% of the kingdom. There's evidence that the kings at times used Muslim titles. Certainly they minted coins that included uh, the Kalima, the Islamic Declaration of Faith. Persian was a court language in Arakan. So even Buddhist rulers in Arakan were using Persian. So if you talk to Rohingya in the 16th century, they're part of the Arakan kingdom. Then the kingdom gets invaded by the Burmese in 1784. So if you talk to them in 1785, they're now part of the Burma Empire. Then there's war between the Burma Empire, which now has a border with the British East India Company. So they go to war in 1824. So again, if you talk to a Rohingya in 1827, they're now part of British India. Then you go to World War II, when Aung San's independence army has pushed out the British into modern Bangladesh and India. And all of a sudden, the Rohingya are part of a Japanese-controlled puppet state called Burma. A few years later, the British come back with the help of many of the Muslims. And just prior to Burmese independence in 1948, the Rohingya are again part of British India from 1948 onwards, the Rohingya were a full part of society. They served in parliament. There were Rohingya ministers. There were Rohingya parliamentary secretaries. There were Rohingya public servants and teachers and police and all, all the usual things that you would expect of a group of people who were a full part of society. So once uh, Burma became independent, the Rohingya participated fully in the society from what you're describing. So at which point did it happen? that suddenly they were seen as the enemy or persecuted or disenfranchised. When did that happen? That happened after 1962. So things for the Rohingya in Burma had been pretty good throughout the 1950s. But things for the country of Burma throughout the 1950s weren't ideal. There was a lot of political instability. Not all the groups that had been incorporated into the new Burma country were happy to be in it. So you had a collection of political circumstances within Burma that were destabilising. The net result was that the military stepped in uh, in one instance to, in, in a sense, steady the ship and then hand it back to the civilian authorities. And then the expectation the military, I think, had was that the country would, would then be more stable. That didn't occur to their satisfaction. And there was serious military coup in 1962. From that point on, the military didn't return power to any form of civilian authority really until the last 10 years. And it became increasingly brutal and to groups that the military leadership considered weren't sufficiently supportive of their conception of what the national model should be, what that meant 
was that it would be dominated by the ethnic majority, which is a group called the Burma, where we get the Burma name from. And that group is overwhelmingly Buddhist. The common phrase was to be Burmese is to be Burma is to be Buddhist. The year 1982, is that when the Rohingya lost citizenship? It's pretty difficult to actually pinpoint the precise moment that the Rohingya go from being acknowledged as citizens to not being citizens. It was a process after the coup in 1962. That's when the big changes seem to have occurred. The 1982 law certainly codifies those changes. So from 1982 onwards, it was much more challenging for the Rohingya to point to the law as a means of giving them collective citizenship. In Myanmar today, the government gets to choose which ethnic groups are collectively granted citizenship. And there are some other abilities for people to individually become citizens, but they're much more difficult. And even getting the government to progress those types of citizenship is is all but impossible. I've got instances of people I've researched with who handed documents to the Burmese authorities in the early 1980s with a view to having their documents verified to demonstrate that they are legitimately citizens of the country and they're still waiting today. So documents handed over in the early 1980s and simply never assessed. What does that look like on the ground, not having citizenship? What does that mean for the day-to-day life of Rohingya people in Myanmar since 1982 and, and before, as you suggest? But what's life like not, being, not having citizenship? Well, pretty grim. To persecute a group like the Rohingya, you really need to do two things. Firstly, remove their citizenship rights and devalue the identity documents that they do possess so that the government can then justify policies against them. The second thing is they need to securitize the place where the Rohingya live. In the Rohingya's community in northern Rakhine state, the government securitized things so that any travel from one village community to another from the edge of the village to the fields where you might work, to travelling to mosque. Any travel could require a permit and could require you to demonstrate that you have a legitimate reason to travel from A to B. And that requires usually the payment of a bribe. So what does it mean for things like education and healthcare? Well, it means you can't travel for those things. If there aren't schools in your community, you immediately can't access education and Healthcare is a, a particularly problematic one because there are very few health facilities in Rohingya communities. So travel to them requires permits, which ordinarily aren't granted. And over the last 20, 30 years, this has been the experience that someone gets sick in a Rohingya community. It takes three or four days before a permit can be granted. By that stage, they're in much worse shape or, or they're deceased. Rohingya generally can't travel because it's made impossible for them to travel. And when I say travel, I mean movement from one village to another even. So even travelling a kilometre or two kilometres over the course of your life, they're born, they live in this it's an open prison situation the entirety of their lives. In recent times, the government of Myanmar has switched off internet access in these communities too. So at the moment when we're dealing with COVID-19 and information is so important, their access to the internet is non-existent. And if you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with Ronan Lee about the situation of the Rohingya living in Myanmar. I asked him 
what prompted the attacks on the Rohingya in 2017. Every decade and a half or so, they undertake a mass deportation. The most recent one was in 2017, supposedly sparked by an insurgent group active in Rohingya communities. And the response was a massive military operation that was clearly pre-planned. It had the effect of forcibly deporting upwards of 700,000 Rohingya civilians across the border to Bangladesh. They were forcibly deported among extrajudicial killings of men, widespread sexual violence against women and girls, wholesale destruction of villages and property. So it was made very clear that the only potential any of them had for any safety was to flee. Those I spoke to in 2017, some were describing this situation as they were lucky because they were able to flee. As a result of all this, the Gambia has taken Myanmar to court, to the International Court of Justice. They've accused them of violating the Genocide Convention. That's exactly what's happened. So lots of countries, scholars and activists and politicians internationally were of the view that what we were seeing was genocide in real time. So the Gambia has taken a case to the International Court of Justice. They say that Myanmar hasn't lived up to its responsibilities as a signatory to the Genocide Convention. The way the International Court of Justice works is that it's for disputes between nations. And the Gambia says its dispute is that as a signatory, that Myanmar, also a signatory, is not keeping up its end of the bargain. And it's important because it's allowing these matters to be aired in The Hague very publicly, and it's given the court an opportunity, which they did some months ago, to order interim measures while they consider the evidence and make decisions. They've ordered uh, provisional measures against Myanmar, which are quite important because they basically tell Myanmar, do not continue to commit genocide and you must report to the court, although the reports haven't been public, but you must report to the court on what steps you're taking to ensure that genocide is not committed. And that first report was due in April, I think. The ICJ could take some years to make decisions about this. And these reports are important because they'll continue to put pressure on Myanmar to be mindful of what actions it's taking. Has there been any change since those orders were placed? You said we can't see the report, it's not publicly available, but is there any information coming out at all that anything has changed? Well, the perception is it hasn't got worse. And in the history of the Rohingya's experience within Myanmar, any period of time where things don't become worse is positive news. But no, the Rohingya circumstances in Myanmar have not improved in any meaningful way since the case began at the International Court of Justice. I just wanted to talk a bit about your book, Myanmar's Rohingya Genocide, Identity, History and Hate Speech. The book began life as uh, my doctoral thesis, but things were changing pretty quickly for the Rohingya and within Myanmar throughout that period. A large part of the book looks at the Rohingya's identity from their perspective. So I've interviewed Rohingya in Myanmar, in the camps in Bangladesh, and among the diaspora in other parts of the world, in Australia, Canada, the UK and the US. 
throughout Southeast Asia, Malaysia, Thailand, and Indonesia. So I put what I hope is an accurate reflection of what is their view, together with my research on the history of Rakhine State and the history of Muslims in Rakhine State and in Arakan. I also did some archival research. Some of the first available records are the old British records. They were manic keepers of records. But some of the evidence that's available, that's new, I mean, this has not been published before, really demonstrates that from 17th, 18th century, the Muslim population of Arakan was indigenous. I mean, some of the first evidence of a group specifically been identified as Rohingya is to be found in the British records. And very clearly it shows that they considered the Rohingya to be indigenous to Arakan and to be entitled to be living there. And that's important today when Myanmar's trying to say they properly belong in Bangladesh. The authorities of Myanmar say, well, it's to do with their religion. The research that I've done tallies with the Rohingya's own understanding of what their history is. In a way, I didn't expect when I started. I fully expected that I'd look at the available historical record and then I'd talk to the Rohingya and read the books that their historians have written. I mean, you were initially interested in identity, weren't you? I was fully expecting that I'd be picking apart the differences between what the historical record said and what the popular understanding of history was. That's, for many people, the fascinating part of history is to look at what we understand today as almost our folk history and what the record shows and to see where there's differences and similarities. I was really surprised at how similar both were. It really strengthens the Rohingya's claim to be a group that's indigenous to Rakhine State. If we really did look at that, probably the Rohingya were in the Rakhine State area before the people who we would understand as the Burmese were in the Rakhine State area. And that's part of the conflict because you've got a dominant Myanmar state that wants this territory, that wants to control it. And the reason we're seeing a genocide isn't because the Rohingya have a weak claim to indigeneity in Rakhine. It's because their claim is so strong. And that's why Myanmar's military and civilian authorities want to push them out. Before our conversation ended, I asked Ronan Lee about the training Australia provides for Myanmar military. At $400,000 a year, it's not big bucks as far as military spending goes. And the Australian government says the training is limited to non-combat areas. Look, I've had quite a bit to say about this over the years. I'm not sure what the current status is, but certainly in 2017, when uh, Myanmar's military were undertaking a genocidal campaign to force hundreds of thousands of people out of the country amid uh, extrajudicial killings, sex crimes, burning of villages. At that time, the Australian military was training Myanmar's military. At that time, was providing training. The reality is that links between Myanmar's military and militaries in countries like Australia are used within Myanmar to justify and to give license to the actions of Myanmar's military in that they say to their people, well, look, we're a professional outfit because, look, we're even doing cooperation with the military of Australia. Dr Ronan Lee, a visiting scholar at Queen Mary University of London's International State Crime Initiative. And in February this year, Human Rights Watch wrote to the Foreign Minister Maurice Payne expressing deep concern over Australia's continued engagement with the Myanmar military. And I'll put a link to that letter 
on the Listening Notes website. And if you want to find out more, you can look for Ronan Lee's book, Myanmar's Rohingya Genocide, Identity, History and Hate Speech, published by Bloomsbury. It's available in just about every possible format. And if you want to follow up on future developments, check out Ronan Lee's website. Easy to find, simply all one word, lowercase, ronanlee.com. So that's R-O-N-A-N-L-E-E dot com. And you can also check out an interview with J.N. Janide, a Rohingya refugee and journalist presently living in Jakarta in Indonesia. And that's on 3CR's Thursday Breakfast show. Just Google 3CR Thursday Breakfast and go to the September 3rd podcast. Tune in to Uprise Radio every first and third Wednesday of the month at 5.30pm on 3CR. With Jackson and James, we're bringing you the in-depth analysis of what's happening in the world all in just 30 minutes. You can listen live to air or you can find us on demand. 3cr.org.au. Stay tuned. And that's all we have time for on Listening Notes today. Thank you to our guests, Jana Favero and Ronan Lee. Stay tuned for Diaspora Blues coming up next. Stay safe, and I'll catch you next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.